Section 20 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 8, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Catherine of Braganza, Chapter 1, Part 2. The Earl of Sandwich was entrusted with the command of the fleet appointed to take possession of Tangier, and then to bring the royal bride to England. The Spanish ambassador, meantime, although the representative of a prince, who claimed to be the Catholic king, endeavored to raise a popular clamor in London by circulating incendiary papers and setting forth an exaggerated summary of the evils that might arise to Protestant England from the introduction of a popish queen. His attempts to excite opposition to the Portuguese marriage were unavailing. All classes had beheld with uneasiness the pernicious influence exercised over the mind of the sovereign by Mrs. Palmer, and were anxious to see a virtuous princess presiding over the court, which, under their bachelor king, began to assume an ominous resemblance to that of William Rufus, where it was, of course, impossible for any ladies of character to appear. In short, King Charles's loyal lieges appeared to have come to the conclusion that it was better for him to have a popish queen than no queen at all. The Spanish ambassador, having been seen in the act of throwing some of the inflammatory papers out of his own windows among the soldiery, King Charles sent the Secretary of State to him with orders to quit the realm forthwith without presuming to see his face again. Batteville implored, even with tears, to be permitted to beg his majesty's pardon in a parting interview, but Charles very properly declined receiving his submission, and was eager to hasten the departure of so troublesome a busybody out of his dominions. The demurs and changes of purpose which had marked the conduct of the royal wooer during the progress of the matrimonial treaty had caused no slight uneasiness to the Portuguese. Their political existence, the security of life and property, appeared to depend at this crisis on the British alliance. The anxiety with which they watched the event may be seen by the reports of Thomas Maynard to Sir Edward Nicholas, Charles's Secretary of State. About four days since, arrived in this port three merchant ships, who brought the news of His Majesty's intentions to make the Infanta Queen of England, the welcomest news that ever came to the Portuguese people, and confirmed by the King's and by the Chancellor's speeches. There is no doubt His Majesty hath made both nations very happy in his choice. The Infanta is a lady of incomparable virtue, of excellent parts, very beautiful, and of an indifferent stature, that is, middle height being somewhat taller than the queen, his majesty's mother, that is Henrietta Maria. Maynard goes on to describe the delight and gratitude that the Portuguese court and capital manifested because the English fleet had appeared to protect the homeward-bound Brazilian merchantmen from the deprivations of the Dutch navy, so that the streets of Lisbon rang daily with the acclamations, Viva il rei di Gran Britannia! whom God hath raised to protect us from our implacable foes. Such were the feelings with which the native country of Catherine of Braganza entered into the alliance with England. All doubts and uncertainties were soon after removed by the arrival of the Conde da Ponte in Lisbon, charged with full powers from Charles, for the completion of the necessary arrangements with the court of Portugal for putting him in possession of his bride. The Conde was the bearer of two autograph letters from his Britannic Majesty, one to Dona Catherine, the other to the Queen Regent of Portugal. My lady and mother, 
This is brought by the good Count da Ponte. The marriage is already concluded, and I obliged him to set forth from hence, by the most urgent request, as he will thereby greatly aid me in regulating the arrival of the queen, my wife, and likewise be useful to her during the voyage, for which I entreat your majesty will excuse his having returned this time without orders. In what concerns the affairs of Portugal, in order that nothing therein may be prejudged, from the absence of the count, I shall take upon myself the care of them, and thus represent him here, whilst he does the like by me in that kingdom. With regard to him as my minister on his arrival, your majesty will be good enough to give entire and royal faith to all he may state as coming from me, touching the quick return of my wife, who may God bring to me in health, and may he preserve your majesty likewise for the many years I desire. The son of your majesty who kisses your hands, Carlos Rex. London, the 2nd of July, 1661. The epistle of his betrothed is one of the most elegant specimens of a royal love letter that was ever penned, at least by a king of Great Britain. My lady and wife, already at my request, the good Count de Ponte has set off for Lisbon. For me, the signing of the marriage has been great happiness, and there is about to be dispatched at this time after him, one of my servants, charged with what would appear necessary, whereby may be declared, on my part, the inexpressible joy of this felicitous conclusion, which, when received, will hasten the coming of your majesty. I am going to make a short progress into some of my provinces. In the meantime, whilst I go from my most sovereign good, yet I do not complain as to whither I go, seeking in vain, tranquility in my restlessness, hoping to see the beloved person of your majesty in these kingdoms, already your own, and that, with the same anxiety with which, after my long banishment, I desire to see myself within them, and my subjects desiring also to behold me amongst them, having manifested their most ardent wishes for my return, well known to the world. The presence of your serenity is only wanting to unite us, under the protection of God, in the health and content I desire. I have recommended to the Queen, Our Lady and Mother, the business of the Count da Ponte, who I must here avow has served me, in what I regard as the greatest good in this world, which cannot be mine less than it is that of your majesty, likewise not forgetting the good Richard Russell, who labored on his part to the same end. The very faithful husband of your majesty, whose hands he kisses, Charles Rex. London, 2nd of July, 1661. Addressed, to the Queen of Great Britain, my wife and lady, whom God preserve. As soon as the marriage treaty was ratified at Lisbon, the Infanta Catherine assumed the title of Queen of Great Britain, and was treated in her brother's court with the same formal respect as if she had been the wedded wife of the sovereign to whom she was betrothed. She was now suffered to emerge from the conventual seclusion in which she had passed the first morning flower of life, and to appear occasionally in public. Maynard gives a favorable report of her character and temper in his official communications to Charles's Secretary of State. We shall, writes he, be extremely happy in a queen. She is as sweet a disposition princess as ever was born, a lady of excellent parts, but bred hugely retired. She hath hardly been ten times out of the palace in her life. 
In five years' time, she was not out of doors until she heard of his majesty's intentions to make her queen of Great Britain, since which she hath been to visit two saints in the city, and very shortly she intends to pay her devotions to some saints in the country. The account of the first use made of her liberty by the simple bride of the merry monarch is certainly amusing enough, and shows how different her notions of pleasure were from those of the ladies of the court, over which she was destined to preside. How little, alas, had the education and pursuits of poor Catherine fitted her to become the companion of a prince like Charles II, and the queen of a nation, where infidelity was, at that time, considered far more pardonable than a superstitious reverence for saints, or the practice of any of those little fond observances which Catherine had been taught to regard as duties. Ignorant, however, of all the difficulties with which her future path was beset, Catherine anticipated, with feelings of hope and pleasure, her approaching transit to her new country, and both her mother and herself awaited impatiently for the arrival of the Earl of Sandwich, and the fleet that was to convey her to the shores of England. The Queen Mother, writes Maynard, is very anxious for her daughter to embark, that she may not be at sea in the winter season. But the admiral of that brave fleet had high and important enterprises to perform before his instructions allowed him to receive the royal bride. It was not till he had cleared the Mediterranean Sea of the pirates, which had done great mischief to the merchant vessels of all nations, taught Algier and Tunis the respect that was due to the British flag, and taken possession of Tangier in the name of his monarch, that the gallant Earl of Sandwich was at liberty to enter the Bay of Lisbon to perform his mission there. His sails appeared at length in a happy hour for Portugal, which was then threatened with a more formidable invasion from Spain than it had experienced for upwards of twenty years. The hostile army was already on its march to besiege a seaport town near Lisbon, which not being prepared for resistance must have fallen, and its capture might have been followed with the most disastrous consequences to the long-struggling realm. The terror of the English fleet caused the Spanish forces to retire with precipitation, and Catherine enjoyed the proud consciousness of having been the guardian angel of her country. She doubtless drew bright auguries from the auspicious circumstances that the first result of her marriage was to preserve the crown of Portugal to her family and freedom to her country. How exultingly must every pulse in her frame have bounded at that idea, while the gay hopes of youth and the flattering representations all around her contributed to throw a deceptive sunshine on her future destiny. The romantic history of the monarch to whom her hand was plighted, so different from the general dull monotony of the career of other European princes, must have been a captivating theme to the imagination of a princess bred in that seclusion which preserves the vivid feelings and generous sympathies of the female heart in their first bloom, long after the period when collision with the cold selfish world would have faded their brightness. The early vicissitudes of Charles II, his generous attempt to preserve his father from a scaffold by sending his signature on a blank sheet of paper to Cromwell to be filled up with any terms it might please the tyrant to impose, his adventurous expedition to Scotland, his perils and almost miraculous preservation during his wanderings as a proscribed fugitive after his defeat at Worcester, and his subsequent restoration to the throne of his ancestors after twelve years of poverty and exile, rendered him far more interesting than any fabled hero of poetic fiction, of whom the Lucian or Castilian bards had ever sung.
Catherine had received from the hands of the brave cavalier, Sir Richard Fanshawe, the miniature of her affianced lord, who in features and complexion rather resembled one of her own countrymen, or a Spanish cavalier, than a prince of the royal house of Scotland. This love token was accompanied by a letter, written in the style of graceful gallantry, which characterizes the billets addressed by Charles II, during his state courtship, to Catherine of Braganza. On the 8th of November, Catherine was publicly prayed for in the churches of London as Queen of England. Charles employed the winter in making preparations for the reception of his expected bride. The arrangement of her household did not pass over without causing some disputes, as we find from the following passage in a letter from one of the nobles of Charles's court. My Lady of Suffolk is declared First Lady of the Bedchamber to Her Majesty, at which the Duchess of Richmond and the Countess of Portland, both pretenders to the office, are displeased. The lady who was, of course, most displeased with all the preparations for the reception of the Queen, was the King's mistress, the beautiful Mrs. Palmer, whom he had lately elevated to the rank of a Countess, by creating her reluctant husband, Earl of Castlemaine. With this bold bad woman, the king, though now professing to regard himself as a married man, passed all his time. He supped at her house every night, and continued to outrage all propriety by the attentions he lavished upon her, both in public and private. He had endeavored to reconcile her to his marriage, by promising that she should be appointed as one of the ladies of the bedchamber to his queen, which would give him constant opportunities of being in her society. While Charles was preparing, by this disgraceful compromise, to plant thorns in the bridal garland of his confiding consort, and to destroy all hopes of conjugal happiness for himself, the arrival of his representative, the Earl of Sandwich, at Lisbon, was celebrated with the greatest manifestations of joy. Magnificent displays of fireworks, illuminations, and bullfights took place on this occasion, and the Queen Regent, to mark her approval of the Conde da Ponte's management of the negotiation, created him Marquez de Sandy. Very formal and elaborate were the ceremonials that attended the reception of the Earl of Sandwich, in his character of ambassador extraordinary, from his Britannic Majesty, to conduct the Queen to England. As soon as the fleet entered the Tagus, the King of Portugal sent Don Pedro de Almeida, the comptroller of his household, to visit him in his ship, attended by his suite, all richly attired, occupying two barges. As Don Pedro's barge, which was highly ornamented, approached the ambassador's ship, his excellency, who was in waiting, descended to the last step of the ladder to receive him, saluting him at the same time with twenty-seven guns. On entering the cabin, Don Pedro seated himself in the best chair, then rose, and taking off his hat, delivered the message of the king, signifying the pleasure his excellency's arrival gave his majesty. Then another salute of twenty-seven guns was fired, and the English ambassador responded with equal solemnity, how deeply he felt the honor that had been conferred upon him. On Don Pedro's departure, he was conducted to the last step of the ladder by the ambassador, who took leave on his stepping into his barge, and saluted with the same number of guns as before. One of the royal coaches was sent to convey the ambassador to the apartments of the Marquez Castello Rodrigo, in the palace which had been prepared for him and his suite, where he was entertained with great magnificence. He made his public entry, conducted by the Marquez de Govea, 
chief steward of the royal household. He had their personal audience of the king, but the reader is spared the detail of the formalities, which, if we may form an opinion of them from the narration of those which were enacted between him and Don Pedro de Almeida, must almost have rivaled the elaborate genuflections and prostrations which take place at a first introduction into the presence of his celestial majesty, the emperor of China. Two days afterwards, his excellency had the honor of being presented to the queen regent and his new mistress, the queen of Great Britain, as the Infanta Catherine was now styled, to whom he delivered letters from his sovereign, written in Spanish, full of tender and endearing expressions. At this audience, Sandwich presented some English gentlemen of rank to Queen Catherine, who had been appointed officers of her household by her royal lord, and she confirmed their appointment by admitting them into their several offices. Nothing but feats, rejoicings, and illuminations were seen and heard, and all went smoothly till the disbursement of the portion of the royal bride was mentioned, when, like many a maternal diplomatist of less exalted rank, the queen mother was compelled to confess her inability to make good the golden expectations she had raised. She told the Earl of Sandwich, with many apologies, that in consequence of the late advance of the Spanish army, she had been compelled to use the money that she had provided for her daughter's portion, in raising troops for the defense of the realm, so that she was only able to pay half the money down, with which she hoped his majesty would rest satisfied, pledging herself to pay the residue within the year. This declaration threw the ambassador into great perplexity. His instructions were to receive the whole of the portion, and no one was more fully aware than himself how much the promise of half a million of money had influenced his needy sovereign to contract this marriage. Never was any man placed in a greater state of embarrassment than the luckless plenipotentiary, who was doomed to act on his own responsibility in a matter of extreme delicacy. He had already taken possession of Tangier, which, by the by, in consequence of the finesse employed by the Queen Regent in securing its peaceful delivery to the English, had very nearly fallen into the hands of the Moors. He had left an English garrison there, and could not think of incurring the expense of bringing them back to England. After all, his resolve was that of a kind-hearted and gallant English sailor, for he signified that he considered the lady of more value than her dowry, by consenting to receive her on board his ship with half the portion, rather than put such a mortification upon her as to leave her behind. If even the moiety of the large sum that had been promised with Catherine of Braganza had been paid in gold or crusados, Charles would not have had so much cause to complain. But when it came to the upshot, the artful queen regent and her Jew factors delivered it in the form of bags of sugar, spices, and other merchandise. The ambassador vainly protested against this imposition, but he found there was nothing else to be got except jewels, which he positively refused to accept or the merchandise either, at the valuation that had been fixed upon them, but agreed to receive them on board his ships, as a consignment to some merchant in London, who should be empowered by the Queen Regent to take them in bulk, and pay the king the money which had been stipulated. In conclusion, Diego Silvas, a Jew of great wealth and credit, was sent with the goods as supercargo, who was to settle the account with the king's officers of the exchequer in London. At the same time, a bond was given by the crown of Portugal for the payment of the other moiety of the portion in the space of a year. Everything being now arranged, the royal bride took her departure in the following order. 
on the 23rd of April new style. She left the antechamber of the Queen Mother, followed immediately by her brothers, the King of Portugal and the Infante Don Pedro, the officers of the household, grandees and fidalgos. They descended the staircase of the Queen's apartments to the hall of the Germans. At the staircase, which leads to the court of the chapel, she was met by the Queen Regent, and as this was the place appointed for taking leave of her mother, she asked permission to kiss her hand, to which the Queen would not consent, but embracing her, gave her her blessing. Neither Catherine nor her mother shed a tear at parting, though both must have felt it deeply, but their ladies, and even the nobles who witnessed it, wept plentifully. This circumstance is noticed by a contemporary poet, who sailed in the royal Charles, and has recorded every incident that occurred, with formal minuteness, in a heroic poem called Ider Lusitania, or the Portuguese Voyage. He says, Here the two queens took leave, but in such sort, as with amazement filled the throng court, their carriage more than masculine, no tear from either of their majesties appeared, art conquered nature, state and reason stood, like two great consuls, to restrain the flood of passion and affection, which nevertheless appeared in sad but prudent comeliness, a scene so solemn that the standers by, both lords and ladies, did that want supply, in this great concourse every one appears, paying a tribute to them in their tears. Catherine, having received her royal mother's last embrace, was led between her two brothers, the king and the infante, to the coach. Before she entered it, she turned about and made a profound reverence to the queen mother, who reiterated her blessing, and retired before her children got into the coach. The king gave the right-hand seat to queen Catherine, and the infante placed himself with his back to the horses. They were attended by the chief of the nobility, in splendid carriages and costly dresses, the captains of the guard following and covering the royal carriage. The procession passed on to the cathedral, between two lines of infantry, the streets being lined with soldiery, and adorned with triumphal arches. All this time were heard, repeated salvos of artillery, from the fortresses and shipping in the river, and the ringing of the bells from all the monasteries and parish churches in the city. Dancers with music also met them in the streets. It was the festival of St. George, and the circumstance of Catherine's embarkation taking place on that day, St. George being the patron of Portugal as well as England, is commemorated by the rhyming chronicler of her voyage in the following pompous lines. St. George was this day mounted in such state, he feared no dragon and could find no mate. This day surmounted other feasts, as far as any festival in the calendar does other days, the Portuguese vaunt, St. George their guardian and tutelar saint, St. George for England, to the English cry. Queen Catherine and her brothers arrived at nine o'clock at the cathedral, which was richly decked for the occasion. On entering the principal chapel, Te Deum was sung. The royal party retired behind the curtain, giving always the place of honor to Catherine as Queen Consort of Great Britain. During the mass, the English ambassador, the chief equerry and comptroller, and other Englishmen of the Reformed religion, who had come in the fleet to accompany their new mistress to England, were invited to walk in the cloisters of the cathedral. Mass being finished, the royal family returned to the coach and proceeded to the Terra de Paso, through streets richly decorated with damasks, silks, and cloth of gold, and adorned with triumphal arches of different orders of architecture. Statues of the bride and bridegroom in royal robes, 
formed an attractive part of the pageantry with which Lisbon greeted her departing princess, as we are told by the author of the Portugal voyage, in his description of Catherine's progress to the water side. Thus passes the king, with all his royal train, conducting the infanta to the main. Thus England's representative we see, attend, receive, conduct her majesty. And as great Trajan triumphed once in Rome, in effigy, so they that hither come, our great King Charles, in Lisbon streets might see triumphant, with his queen in majesty, the robes and royal ensigns he put on, in the solemn day of his coronation, he in his princely portraiture, and she both in her person and her effigy. The procession entered the Paso, through a garden near the dockyard, where a door was opened in the wall for the passage of the royal family only, all the grandees who were in the suite, having to alight and proceed, by another door of the garden, to appear gaily decked out, which reached into the sea, where the royal brigantines lay, all who had accompanied her kissed Queen Catherine's hand before she embarked. They offered the same mark of respect to the king, but he declined it, out of courtesy to his sister. Catherine then entered the splendid brigantine, or barge, which had been prepared for her, being assisted by the king, her brother, who led her by the hand. The infante followed them, and when they were seated, the English ambassador, chief equerry, and comptroller of the queen, with other gentlemen of honor, who were English, came next, and after them, the Marquis de Sande, who was reappointed ambassador extraordinary from Portugal to England, and four other Portuguese grandees, who were to accompany the queen to England. The officers of the royal household, and the nobility who had followed the king, were in the other boats. As soon as the royal brigantine began to move onward, the salvos of the artillery were repeated, till she came alongside the English admiral's ship, the Royal Charles, which carried eighty brass cannon and six hundred men. Catherine was then assisted to mount the commodious ladder, which had been prepared for her embarkation. The moment she came on board, a royal salute was fired by the British fleet, and answered by the Portuguese forts, the guns firing alternately. Welcome she was in thunder, while the shore, by King Alfonso's order, strives to outroar, our cannon and our culverins which fly, and fill the land, the waters, and the sky. Lightning and thunder from each oaken side proclaim the welcome of our royal bride. Queen Catherine, having been formally consigned by the king, her brother, to the admiral ambassador, was conducted to her cabin, and then her royal brothers took their leave. The ladies who had attended her on board kissed her hand at parting, those only who had appointments in her household being permitted to remain with her. The strictness of that etiquette by which the daughters of the royal family of Portugal were fettered required that Catherine should have remained in her state cabin, but the heart of the yet unwedded bride of England claved to the land of her birth and the companions of her childhood. She accompanied her brothers to the deck, and even to the first step of the ladder, where she lingered, notwithstanding all the signs from the king for her to return to her cabin, till he and Don Pedro had entered the royal barge, and seated themselves under the awning. The king steered for the Paso, the boats with the ladies and officers of his suite followed him, and all the fleet got under way, but the wind proving contrary, they could not leave the bay. That night there was general illumination, both in the city and in the English fleet, and shipping in the river, and a grand display of fireworks on land and sea. 
the river and the bay were crowded with boats which threw up fireballs and made an aquatic carnival to testify their joy and to divert the grief of the royal voyager at her separation from her country and kindred the next day the wind was still contrary and remained so till the twenty-fifth during which time the queen-mother sent frequently to inquire how the queen of england her daughter endured the inconveniences of shipboard all that art and luxury could devise to render her majesty's accommodations on board the royal charles as agreeable as possible had been effected the fitting up of her marine apartments is thus described by the rhyming chronicler before quoted her royal cabin and her state-room too adorned with gold and lined with velvet through the cushions stools and chairs and clothes of state all of the same materials and rate the bed made for her majesty's repose white as the lily red as sharon's rose egypt nor the isles of katim have not seen such rich embroideries nor such a queen windows with taffeties and damask hung while costly carpets on the floor are flung regions of perfumes clouds of incense furled in every room of this our little world here she begins her progress comes aboard turns voyager to greet her dearest lord the royal charles by sea and land she'll take both for her zenith and her zodiac the evening of the twenty fourth of april found the british fleet with the royal bride still wind-bound in the bay of lisbon that night the king of portugal with his brother the infante and a chosen number of the gallant and chivalric nobles of the court prepared to give the departing princess the agreeable surprise of a serenade on the waters they embarked with their musical instruments in several barges and coming under the galleries of the royal charles sang the various carols sonnets madrigals canzoni and epithalamiums that had been composed in honor of her nuptials this poetical incident which would have afforded a charming subject for the graceful muse of Camoens, elicited the following stiff heroics from the english bard who commemorates catherine of Braganza's bridal voyage the king's last farewell the wind was wholly contrary that day all which in visiting was passed away but when morpheus had closed up most eyes and night's black curtains were drawn o'er the skies down comes the king in his royal barge amain incognito with his harmonious train to sing his sister's farewell which was done to ecstasy and admiration under our gilded galleries he floats the reader may be spared to the trite allusions to orion orpheus and amphion with which he labors out eighteen more lines of bathos concluding with this modest confession i want both skill and language to express the order melody and comeliness of this night's action but the approaching day silenced the music sent the king away End of section twenty.